everyone has an authentic and interesting story that we can all relate to. On Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie, our podcast gives these stories the space to be heard. Along the way, we will laugh, learn, and appreciate this interesting and crazy journey called life. Now, here are Stock and Hixie for the most authentic conversation you will hear today. Welcome to another episode of Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hixie. Stock, how are you? I am doing great today. You, you've had enough coffee? You, you... I've had a lot of coffee. I've, had, I've got my tea with me right now. I've been running and gunning, but I am, as usual, but more so today, excited about our guest. Well, before we get to our before we get to our guest, I, yeah, I would like you to share with everyone uh, your costume party, your Halloween party that you <laughs> attended, and and tell us tell us in detail <laughs> what you wore on Saturday night. You and the lovely Martha. I did come home Saturday, and uh, Martha made me aware we were going to a costume party. Uh, nice. I was a little bit hesitant. <laughs> She had brought me home a King Trident. A King? What, what do you mean? You know, Trident, King Trident, I guess, from what's oh, King the, of the Sea or something? Yeah, like King that, of the that. Sea. I had a, you know, a, I had a, a Trident and I had a beard down to my uh, stomach, a white beard and a crown, and I had a full Aquaman type costume. And did you do this? willingly after you put it on i mean you, you you was there any conversation or you didn't even you know push, oh she push back? she knew i was pushing back but in my attempt to be a better spouse <laughs> i did not push back too much but i will say this i had going for me no one could recognize it was me oh yeah so needless to say we went to the halloween wait party. wait wait, wait. Yes. what was martha is it Ariel? Oh, Ariel, the yeah, the yeah, mermaid. The mermaid. She was Ariel yeah. the mermaid. She had the pearls and the red wig on, and she looked fabulous. Of course. And it was kind of weird. I'm not sure. Trident, King Trident's Ariel's father. Oh, boy. <laughs> so I don't know what that meant. Oh, boy. Listen, I'm, I have to admit, I, I didn't realize they made costumes for anybody uh, <laughs> over 14. Neither did and, I. And then, and then it fit you as well. It did fit, didn't it? It did fit. It fit actually, perfect. It fit really well. <laughs> fit really well all right do we get to ask did he have the speedo on yeah yeah (laughs) no i had no speedo on i was i was wearing brooks brothers boxers i was gonna say you weren't commando (laughs) i couldn't go commando that fabric is thin okay all right all right let's let's move on to our guest we have uh debbie easter with us today uh she grew up here in elmore county she lived here all her life uh, she's quite the athlete growing up, recruited to play basketball at the University of Virginia, then ended up playing lacrosse and become and became an All-American uh, on the lacrosse field, which is you know pretty amazing. She's in the Commonwealth of Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, which is a, a nice, was inducted there. I'm not sure when she can tell us when that was. Mm-hmm. Uh She's been involved in the thoroughbred business for many years and is respected around the country for her knowledge and her acumen about the business. Uh, she led the way in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia for getting horse racing back, and, which has helped the thoroughbred business in general in Virginia. Um, it also has helped the Virginia economy. Okay, and, and that's really an interesting story, and that's really uh, Debbie's passion is 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 the horse business. Uh, she's a great friend to so many people, 
and, and we are thankful that she is with us today. Debbie, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. I'm honored and uh, can't wait to talk about, as you say, the passion, the whole horse racing thing in Virginia and and nationwide is uh, something I've been uh, grew up around and passionate about. And uh, we've got it working on. We've got it firing on a lot of cylinders here in Virginia right now. So it's very nice. That's great. You you know, Tom Hicksy kind of fancies himself a thoroughbred. So it's no surprise <laughs> <laughs> that he wanted you in here. But I will say this as we start the podcast, uh, and I truly mean this. Debbie, you are without a doubt one of the nicest people I've ever met. You have always been so kind to me and my family. You always ask about my sister, and you've only met her once or maybe twice uh, in your life. And that always has a tremendous impact on me, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you. That's very kind, especially because I can't remember my last name most of the time. So I'm surprised I remember I met her, but <laughs> it's that's all right. It's amazing. So, so you grew up in Charlottesville and you sound like you were a big time athlete. Did Were you an athlete as a kid? I was. I was more of a tomboy as a kid okay. and uh, enjoyed much, uh, much more uh, playing with the boys probably than I did with the girls' sports. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, my father, I don't know if you all know this, and a few gentlemen from around the area at one time uh, built an ice rink here, and not the ice rink that was here on the mall, but there was an ice rink back in the 70s on Green, off of Greenbrier Drive, and it's now, uh, it's now a, it used to be a warehouse when Sperry, after the ice rink, it was a warehouse for Sperry, and now I think it's a warehouse for different things. Furniture but, warehouse, I yes. think. Yeah. So my dad always wanted me to figure skate, but I, I, I fancied ice hockey a lot better than <laughs> uh, figure skating. So they built a ice rink, and <clears throat> was your dad a hockey guy? He did. He grew up around, uh, he grew up uh, Lake Forest, Illinois. Okay. And uh, moved here right, right about when I was born, just a little bit before I was born, and uh, but he grew up a passion for ice hockey and thought uh, that Charlottesville, that that was something that would be needed. And it was great for, for a little while before they, before they uh, uh, built the ice rink, uh -huh. there was a little league team here and all of friends, people you're familiar with all were on this team. And there was a, a ice little ice rink up on the, there was a Holiday Inn at the top of Afton oh, Mountain, yes, you know, yes, that yes, hotel oh, yeah, that's yeah. front. So out there, there was a little square ice pad of ice basically yeah. and and i'm we're talking we were six to ten years old back then but you know you hit the puck hard enough it was going off the side of the mountain because there were no <laughs> boards there was just some pipe there that uh and so uh they they had a little team and they'd they'd travel to dc or something and some they'd get whomped on and then they'd come back i actually think their big trip was uh hershey pennsylvania they went to go play the little mini hershey bears oh wow yes Hershey Bears. Yeah, but nobody even knows that that existed in Charlottesville back in the 70s. Yeah, I, so. didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. What was the so, name of the team? Oh, boy. Now, see, you got me there. You got me. <laughs> That's an But they looked like jailbirds because they had on these uh, tights that had blue and white stripes that were horizontal. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they looked like little jailbirds, but <laughs> I don't remember what they were called. Well, if your brother was on the team, that was apt. Yes, it was. Oh, there was a few other uh, characters that were on that team, I think. I love so, it. I, I had no idea. Uh, yes. All right. So you played, obviously, basketball and lacrosse growing I did. up? I, I played. Uh, I played all sports did growing up. As, too? Yep. As, as yeah. kids did, uh, I believe, back when we were all sure. younger, that we played sports 
there were seasons and you you stopped one sport and you played another exactly. sport unlike now where where kids take a sport and that's what they play forever so uh i played yeah i played anything from soccer to field hockey to lacrosse to basketball um and you know a little game called uh Smear the queer, I think, when we were uh, <laughs> kids, a lot. That's the way he seemed to play at recess quite a bit. So, and, and probably so, not a very politically correct, correct name now, but it it was more just smear the kid with the ball. Yeah, 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 I get it. Yeah. And so, you get recruited to go play basketball for UVA. Is that right? I did, but you know, so here I I played on St. Anne's. I went to school at. What is what was stab? I think then, yeah, yeah, or it sure. just turned stab. Sure. And uh, remember, you have to kind of think about girls basketball. There, we we wore skirt, skirts when we uh, played okay. basketball. I'm not sure there was any uh, fine coaching. I think it was probably because I was six two and everybody else was you know <laughs> five six. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, yes, that's when Debbie Ryan was uh, was coach at Virginia, and and uh, she she had paid attention and she would call me and come see me i don't know if she came see me but can't remember that but she definitely read in the paper and uh i would get some phone calls and this was i came to virginia just when the girls basketball team was started probably in the when they were in the top 20 and then a few years after that is when she really went on those runs Mm of uh getting them to the final four and stuff like that so she was a she was a very uh a very good coach. Wow. So, so, so you come to Virginia thinking you're going to play basketball, or you're just like, I don't know. The, 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 I really love lacrosse. Is that? Yeah, I, I knew I liked lacrosse. I knew I could play with the lacrosse players here because I had played with them, you know, in scrimmages and those yeah. kinds of things. But, uh, and a, and a lot of the gals from St. Anne's were on the lacrosse team. There were a handful of gals from St. Anne's that played lacrosse here. Um, so I'd played with them in, in high school. Um, basketball, I went to her basketball camps and uh, it was, you know, it's a different kind of basketball than what I was used to playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a different, I think those four or five, I don't know what it was, four days of tryouts at uh, at uh, University Hall were uh, about as hard as two hours as uh, it was wide open hundred percent for two hours the whole time you practiced it was it was really something that i wasn't very used to so i actually didn't make the team my first year mm-hmm. and uh she uh she was always after me she's like yeah we could use your height and why don't you come back but at the end of the day things always work out as people say uh, i think that if i had played basketball and back then it was easier to play two sports than it is now i think there's a few people that do that but uh, I think I would have lost out on all the all the other fine things that you uh, learned at the university and uh, get to experience. I would say, I love it. I yeah. love it. So, so then you, so then you say, hey, okay, I'm not going to be playing basketball, but I do want to play lacrosse. Sure, sure. And you went first year to play lacrosse, or second year, or when did you go? No, I, I played lacrosse first year. And uh, what position did you play? Well, for it was called first home then, and I don't even know if that position exists in women's lacrosse anymore. But it would be comparable to a crease attack in uh, 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 men's lacrosse. I would have been. I wish I could say I was the Connor Schellenberger of women's lacrosse mm-hmm. back then, but uh, I don't think I quite had the skills he had. Well, but you uh, have been a goal scorer. 
uh had that, that, that you are a good yeah yeah no no but once again it helped you know i was six two and yeah, and it yeah, helped yeah, but yeah. it was uh yeah. but yes during high school and and uh during college i was a goal scorer yeah so now, I was the last person they had to throw the ball to before they hit the goalie now <laughs> when you say goal scored the truth of the matter is is you were one of the if not hold the scoring record at virginia women's lacrosse yeah, I haven't. I don't haven't looked. I'm sure I'm still right there. But I I, I scored ten goals in one game. I'm embarrassed to say because it just sounds like you're a huge ball hog. But I scored ten in one game and <laughs> and nine in another. I don't think they have my ten goal game there because it was against Duke, which is all of us that are Virginia fans love the idea of that. But yeah. uh, I think they were just a club team when I when I got those. Uh, so it's not Man, in the official awesome. rule books. Well, we'll edit that part out yes. because we we want that we didn't, we want everyone to know that Debbie scored ten goals against Duke. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's Regardless right. of whether a club team or a varsity team, yeah, exactly. it's amazing. And and then you because of your prolific career, um, you've obviously been recognized as the in the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame and uh, recognized as an ACC fifty greatest in in lacrosse, and uh, that in itself is awesome. But very then, much an honor. Yeah. But then and it's, you, I think it's a Virginia Sports Hall of, I mean, a Virginia Lacrosse Hall of Fame. I'm okay. not, I, I don't know, because I think there's a bigger Virginia Sports, Sports Hall, Hall of it. Fame that has people like, you know, George Welsh and yeah, yeah, yeah. real famous people, not not me. Well, don't, well, you're famous. Don't sell yourself short. Exactly. Here. Don't, don't get involved I mean, in the details. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. So then you get out of school. Tell me about or tell us about you getting in the horse business. Sure. So I grew up around here, uh, riding, fox hunting, horse showing, and uh, had been uh, one of our good friends, uh, Miss Bunny Gibbons, which is her maiden name was Camp. Her father was very much in the horse business around here. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to be dragged around to some horse sales like Saratoga and Keeneland when I was younger. And But I didn't I'd grown up in Charlottesville, went to school here, went to the university. I need to get out of Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. So uh I went to uh, New York, and once again, Miss Bunny Gibbons came through and found me a job at the Jockey Club. And so I did the, uh, which the Jockey Club is not the restaurant in New York, although that's a fine restaurant, right, right, right. Is, uh, is the Thoroughbred Registry. And so I was, uh, I started there, and that's, uh, explain, you know. Explain what that is, because I'm not a horse, I'm not a really a horse person. Tell me about the Thoroughbred Registry. Sure. Well, so uh, just like the American Kennel Club is right. for dogs. Um, the jockey club is for, uh, for thoroughbred horses. You have to register your horse in order to have it to be eligible to run in races or mm -hmm. to breed it as a thoroughbred and, and join the thoroughbred world. They also at that time were fairly, and, and still are fairly active in, in, the, the overseeing of racing and especially in the New York area. Okay. Um, they were that, but the, the main thing that I did when I went there was, I just started off as a clerk and, and, uh, you know, we had to, we had to pass, a, you know, check these pedigrees and check pictures of horses and make sure who they were. And because I had some horse knowledge, I was able to, uh, to grow a little faster than those that sat around, uh, that were from New York. But, uh, so that's, that's when I really got a lot of experience into racing and, uh, and, and grew in that company fairly quickly within a, I, I think I spent four years in the, in the city and then they moved that whole registry office to Lexington, Kentucky. And they sent me down there ahead of time to 
open that and hire people and do all that. And so uh, for a person of 20, 20 some odd years old, it, you know, I got a fair amount of experience sure. and I'm always a big fan of any young person going to New York. I just think it's a, you're able to learn so much in a hurry so much while I love Charlottesville and I think it's the greatest place to live, uh, New York for young people or a big city like that. I, I haven't, you know, it's just, there's just so many opportunities and so many things. I mean, just the difference of you read three newspapers or mm -hmm. we used to read newspapers back yeah. in that day, but you'd, uh, you know, just that and being around smart people and sure. really, a really a good opportunity. And so then you go to Lexington, Kentucky mm -hmm. and y'all open up shop there. Mm-hmm. And you move up in the organization or what happened? I did. I was, you know, I was, but I knew I was going to come back as much as I liked Lexington. I knew I was going to come back to Charlottesville. I don't know why I just had that uh, feeling that Charlottesville was pulling me out, all, you know, when I was 32 years old or 30 years old, I knew that eventually I was going to come back. So I was like, why am I kind of fooling around down here? Let's, let's come on back to Charlottesville. Which I did, but you knew you wanted to come back to Charlottesville because you loved to live here. Or, but did you did you have an idea of being in the horse business when you? I came didn't back? actually. I knew I wanted to come back here and live. And actually, for about uh, for about nine months, I worked for my dad um, in Easter Associates, uh -huh. which is a uh, we run uh, statewide trade associations. And I thought it was going to be great because it was all different industries you work with, and it'd be kind of interesting. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> and so after about nine months, it, it, there, there's something about us horse people. There's something in your blood that makes you, uh, when you leave it, I didn't mind being away from the horses a little bit in college because there were other things that take up your time and your, your mind. But uh, uh, there are things about being being involved with horses and you get away from them and the pull is, the pull is incredible. And uh, anyway, so I, uh, I decided that, well, I might as well stop fooling around and get to the, get to what I was really going to do. And that was so I opened, uh, I, I used my parents' farm and I opened Springhaven, uh, Springhaven farm and, and, uh, what my friends, uh, fondly referred to me as the, uh, as the horse, uh, midwife. So uh, we, uh, I had had experience growing up about foal and mares and, mm -hmm. and breeding. So we, uh, at, at, at one time I had, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, we fold 110, 120, uh, 20 mares a year at, at Springhaven. So oh, it wow. went, we, that farm went hunting, you know, 24 hours a day. Owners come to you and say, Hey, I've got this mare who's ready to fold. Right. I don't know the, the, the proper language, but, it, and they would send them to you to handle that. Is sure. That sure. And that, and we had stallions. So, oh, I, so we, were... I started off as spring Haven stable and then myself as racing, racing first came as I was starting that the actual back in that was like about 95, 96, 97 and actually paramutual passed. And, uh, the racetrack was passed and decided it would go in at, uh, in between Williamsburg and Richmond, and that was Colonial Downs. And so there was a little resurgence of people thinking Virginia might be the new spot for thoroughbred racing. And so as that happened, I partnered with a veterinarian from town, Dr. Reynolds Coles, who's mm -hmm. and his wife, Evie, and I all became partners on a larger venture called Almarle Stud. 
and Reynolds has sort of been my mentor since I was a kid in the horse business. And, uh, and we had, we ran off of three farms. We had stallions, we had mares. So people would send us, they might send us their mares just to foal, Mm -hmm. but they also might stay to breed to our stallions. They might live on our farm full time. So it was a very, when we, when we were going in the spring, we had upwards of 125 horses at any given time on the farms and then it would quiet down in the in the fall but it kept us we went all day all night like i said all day all night i I think about what we did in our 20s and 30s as far as work and i go how could have anybody done that Mm -hmm. i mean i was up most nights and i don't know how i don't know how maternity doctors do it all year round because i only had to do it from january to june but you're up most nights and and uh you know, you're delivering babies and you're making sure everything's okay. And then work starts again at five thirty or six. Why only January to June? Because what happens with uh, thoroughbred horses is there's a universal birth date of January one. So whether I'm born on January one, or if I'm born on June 23rd, when that next January one comes around, I'm a year old. Mm -hmm. And so as far as competing and racing, like, take your Kentucky Derby, a horse that's born in January mm-hmm. versus a horse that's born in June probably has a lot more maturity, sure. especially horses early in their ages, in their life, a lot more maturity. So everybody in the racing world is trying to get their mare to foal as close to January 1 as they can without foaling in December. Because mm-hmm. if she fold, if I oopsed and I fold in December 28th, yeah. That two-day-old foal is going to be a year old when January one comes around, oh, and it. so wow. it's uh, yep. Mm. So we trigger everything. It's really, and they they use this science in a lot of different things, from soft-shell crabs to shit to having them shed. But we use lights so that we those mares so we can breed them as close to February fifteenth as because that uh, a mare has an eleventh month gestation. We'll use, we'll fake them out during the winter time because just like everybody else, they kind of, their reproductive systems kind of slow down. So Mm -hmm. we, we put them under what we call put them under lights and we start to put them under lights for about 18 hours a day in, uh, in November. And it, it fakes out their system and tells them that, Hey, it's springtime's come along so we can breed them that early in the system. Otherwise their natural breeding cycle would be more in the April may june and uh so that we have to do that to to make that all happen wow put them under lights interesting yeah. yes. okay so uh i will say you made a comment about people in the horse business and i know a couple of them uh, mutual friends and boy you are right i mean it, it's a it's something in their blood it is they're all about it it's long hours early mornings um, but they just absolutely, it's a huge passion. I mean, it really, I can't think of another thing kind of like it. No, it's a lifestyle. We always have yeah, to talk our style and it's a lifestyle and you've got to enjoy it because the financial rewards are far and few between. And, and I'm not saying they can't be there, but, uh, you have to enjoy that. Uh, you have to enjoy that, uh, that is long the, hours. Is it a, the animal? Is it the people? Is it the culture what is it about it i think it's a combo of everything you know it's Mm -hmm. uh it's uh the animals are important the uh the people you meet uh 
Hey, it's a crazy business. Uh, uh, you know, you've got billionaires in this business, this racehorse business, who probably don't know the names of most of the people that work for them in their company. Mm -hmm. But they'll come out to the barn, whether they have broodmares or they have racehorses, and they know they know the names and are, are very friendly with the guys that are taking care of their horses because that's something that they've got a passion for and it i guess it's fun for them versus sure. their business i've always i've always found that very interesting that that uh and that you're you know they're socializing together and that might not happen in the real world i mean you know in yeah, their yeah, business no, stock hixie how are you good buddy i'll tell you look i got to talk to you about something do it you know our sponsor antigua threads yes antigua threads have you seen their new website? I have. Dude, let me tell you something. They have now got new belts, new buckles. They've got a leather tote. I'm telling you, Chief, this tote. stuff. Yes, tote bags. This stuff is flying off the shelves. Handmade in Guatemala? Are you kidding? Yes, handmade in Guatemala. It's always handmade in Guatemala. Word. It is the, the designs are better than ever. Listen to me. I'm listening. If you go on their website and you put in the code authentic guess how much you save when you make a purchase 20 percent. you got that right chief you get 20 percent off antiguathreads.com okay so we're talking about albemarle stud and, and and why you're doing all this you're obviously getting more and more educated in regard to bloodlines sure history of bloodlines research yeah all that goes along with that i um you know, at this at the same time I was running the farm, I was very lucky in that um, I had a neighbor who sold a farm out in Keswick to a gentleman from Atlanta who wanted to get into the racehorse business, and uh, it intrigued him, and he wanted to get in in a, a more serious way and had the means to do it. Um, that's what happens a lot of times in the in the horse business is there are a lot of very capable people, but most of them are underfunded. Mm -hmm. So I just happened to be lucky enough that a gentleman found me that was very well funded and so we were we started going to kentucky and buying nice horses and we started off what we call pin hooking where you buy a young horse and you try to turn it around at about in a six-month cycle for a profit and uh, we're day trading basically uh -huh. and uh <laughs> we uh we uh we were very successful at that and at, at, at his level we were able to play above the the other guys that are the normal work guys at, at uh, in Kentucky, we we were buying horses in the four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, six hundred thousand dollar range, and we'd be able to. That was a little bit more because it's a risky. But he was he was very good. He understood quality, and he always put in our minds just buy enough quality that if the market turns we're going to be happy having this horse ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we lucked out the market didn't turn and we were able to play at a level that a lot of people didn't. And so you're hoping if you bought a half a million dollar horse that six to eight months down the road, we might be able to sell that horse for a million dollars. And what would make the horse go up in value six to eight months down the road? So it's crazy. It may just be, you know, you hope that something pops in the pedigree okay. that, that, that somebody that's a half brother or sister goes, but it may be, that the sire got hot of that. Mm -hmm. it's, um, you you know, first things first, you want the horse needs to grow from this, you know, kind of gangly, uh, like you think of a kid as an athlete, a gangly kid to really starting to, 
by the time he's a yearling that he's really starting to flex his uh, flex his muscles, looking like a a real true stud athlete. And and that's the first thing they come looking for is those horses. And then what's happening in the pedigree? If you get a bump there, really determines if you're gonna really hit the ball out of the but, park. But you're you're training with that. You're training that horse in that six months. Not not or, in the not natural. when you're going from weanlands to yearlings. It's no different. I'm a lot in what I do when I'm advising people about buying horses and reselling them, just like a uh, scout would be on a sure. high school athlete. They, you know, they're going to look at something that's athletic, a person that's athletic, a kid. And then you got to go hoping that that kid grows up and, and, and does that. And, and so, yes, we might've trained some of them, but uh, as they go to the racetrack, that's another way to go. And, uh, and that's picking racehorses. And, and once again, you're looking for athletes that you think might go on to become a racehorse. Is there any kind of, I know we talked about the registry earlier. Is there any kind of database, amalgamation of information of bloodlines of, you know, uh, horses from these bloodlines and our cousins of a horse from a bloodline? Is there anybody keep just a, a macro database on this stuff is sure and that's possible? what the, that's what the jockey club does and okay. it's as far as pedigree information now there's all sorts of people out there that put their own kind of data stuff for try what's what's the beautiful thing about this game is is that everybody has a chance because there's so much out of your control these are animals uh -huh. and things go wrong on animals all the time you know they they run through the fence they you know they stub their toes all the time so Debbie Easter can somewhat compete with the shakes from Dubai yeah. because if not, they could buy the game. And, and, you know, you hear these great stories about Kentucky Derby winners that were bought for $17,000. Well, we can afford that, but you know, we're competing against horses sure. that were bought for two, three, you know, million dollars. And it's a, it's a great, it's a great game and, and it's one of the funniest stories I always tell is clients come to me and especially guys that have been very successful in business. I can I can just dictate what they're gonna say. They're gonna they're <laughs> gonna say, Debbie, now I was very successful in business and we're gonna run this like like I run my business and, and we're gonna have an advantage over everybody else. And I, I say that's super. I think that's a very smart way to go, but I say there's a lot of things that you don't have control of in this game, a lot of things. And, you know, you got to have a little luck. And also, you don't understand how many successful guys there are in this business. Oh, yeah. And they go, Debbie, we'll, we'll do this and we'll do fine. And, and those are the guys typically that get very disappointed being in the horse business. Because if you can hang in uh -huh. and, you, and you have a little bit of long pants, some good's going to come your way, but that's beautiful. Another beautiful thing is the good always takes care of the bad down yeah, here. Yeah. You, you, you forget the good is so good. You forget about how this is down there. And, and the ones that don't have long pants won't stay there. But if you can, if you can sit in a horse business and, uh, and you can wait it out, something good is going to happen to you. So do you broker horses now? all over the country or what 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 does your business look like now so not as much as i used to i do it still for some fun i'll buy some horses and we partner them out um but at one time that's what i did for a living um in between albemarle stud when that closed and between what i'm doing now so now i run the virginia thoroughbred association um and 
also a president of the Virginia Equine Alliance, which has been an organization we had to put together when the racetrack closed here in Virginia. And we put this organization together of all the racing entities to capture some money that was going to go away from Virginia, that was going to go back to some gaming companies. And, um, and so I managed the association, uh, very involved with the racing here in Virginia and, and do try to do try to advise some people and buy some horses every once in a while, but I, I, I can't spend the time going to horse sales and around the country to the racetracks like I used to mm -hmm. do. Debs, why did uh, the racetrack close down and when was that? So what's happened in, um, I'm not going to remember the exact dates, but the once uh, paramutual wagering was, uh, was, was passed here in Virginia, the racetrack opened. And at that time, we, we had uh, the, the revenue streams were money bet at the racetrack. And then they did allow us up to 10 OTBs. And then um, what happens is that Virginia was always behind everybody else. And so I don't know if you all knew, but back in the 70s, racing and boxing were the two two most fan-worthy sports in this country. Mm -hmm. And what happened uh, to racing um, is that at the time that TV came mm -hmm. um, and, and people daily, people were – you know, there'd be 40,000, 50,000 people at Aqueduct on a race day. Um, TV came and they said, we want to put you on the TV and racing the, the, the higher up said, we don't need you. So then they took football, baseball, oh, all that. Oh, interesting. And so we lost our, you know, as those things, as TV grew those sports, we weren't there. And um, so anyways, to get back to your question, which was... I forget. Well, well, Colonial Downs. Oh, yes. It was, yeah. it was so, open and then it shut so down. So Virginia was already behind the eight ball because we never had paramutual wagering here. And so we got it. The revenue streams for, you know, at that point, racing had already sort of, you know, started their decline. So the revenue that was generated from people that were at our racetrack, and remember, we were only running about 30 days a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's not a lot of revenue. The OTBs. We're doing okay, but it, it was this gentleman, I'll tell you who built the racetrack here was Jeff Jacobs um, from the Jacobs family from the Cleveland Indians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what they had hoped at the time he was built those tracks, what was happening and what has evolved with racetracks is that we need other revenue streams to make it go. And so casinos and other sorts of gaming were we're using racetracks to get their foot in the door in 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 states, mm -hmm. certain states. That's what he was hoping was going to happen here in Virginia. Well, it didn't happen for him. He was difficult to deal with, and and uh, I I don't think the flavor was was there for that at the time. So the racetrack closed down in about uh, 1997, and uh, was was shuttered for about five or six years, and we knew. And, and, the, and during that time, we we formed the Virginia Equine Alliance, and we did what we could to keep racing going in Virginia, which mainly meant we took any purse money we had and we went to Maryland and ran. ran. And we knew until we had another revenue source, we weren't going to be able to get anybody interested in buying Colonial Downs. It just didn't, the model didn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. There weren't enough people coming to the track. Um, there weren't enough people. You know, face it, we're a, we're a we're a dying sport. I don't have a, any way, a better way to say it. But 
so what happened is we got the legislature. They understood how important the horse industry is to this this state. We're uh, you know green spaces. The farms are mm-hmm. you know we're a half a billion dollar just racing. We're a half a billion dollar uh, industry to um, to the whole agriculture uh, industry here in Virginia. The entire horse industry is about a billion dollar industry here in Virginia, but we needed a revenue source to make the whole thing work. And, and what that is and was kind of new and we were able to get it is something called historic horse racing. Now, if I stuck a slot machine and a historic horse racing machine in this room next to each other, you guys and me neither would be able to tell the difference between the slot and historic horse racing. But in the back, a historic horse racing machine runs on paramutual where a slot res- slot machine is a, a random uh, number generator. And so it's it's considered paramutual wagering. And we were able to get that passed. And the crazy thing is, guys, we're allowed to have 5,000 HHR machines here in the state of Virginia, and we've only been able to get 23 going so far since this, since this started in... Wait a uh, second, 5,000... Machines. But you've been only been able to get 23 machines started? 2,300, I'm 2300. sorry. 2,300, okay, got it. Got but it, got let it. me tell you what happens with 2,300 machines. Yeah. $4 billion a year. Good <laughs> night. It's a crazy, it's the craziest thing. And so the horse industry gets a percentage, uh, most of that, 92% of those dollars go back to the betters. But, but, you know, when you're talking about 10% of $4 billion, that's a lot of money. And we get a piece of that. Where are the machines? So there's machines at Colonial Downs. What's happened here in the horse industry is that we're allowed to have Colonial Downs and 10 other facilities, but we can't go to a locality without a referendum. So it's been hard over the years, and that that was true with an OTB. So when Colonial Downs opened, reopened again, we were able to use the referendums that we had previously passed, and, and a lot of those have HHR facilities, or Rosies is what we call them here in Virginia, because uh, the uh, the demographic, believe it or not, is ladies uh, 50 and older. And uh, really? so there's a Rosies in Richmond, there's one in Hampton, there's one in Vinton, which is outside of Roanoke, because we could never get a referendum passed in a, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier to get a referendum passed in a in a smaller community so, than a larger, so, so especially on something like gambling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So explain. So um, I want to go. I live outside of Roanoke, and I want to make a bet. Is that that's what I'm doing? Sure. And uh, like, the, what is the machine? So, so you could go if you lived at uh, if you went into a Rosie's, and and you could do one of two things. There's an OTB in there, so you could sit there and make horse wagers. So if you like to do that and watch simulcast or whatever, yeah, watch the simulcast, and you could do that. Or the mo- the majority of the 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 space is what you would look like as slot machines. But they're not r- what you. Said. They're not classified as slot machines. They're classified as paramutual because you're betting. They use the machines and they bet into a pool. Yes, that you can see. You know what the pool's yeah, doing, yeah, yeah. unlike a unlike a slot machine, random. which is just yeah. random, and it's just yeah. you're playing against that one uh, machine. Okay, I get it. And I get it. the beautiful thing about paramutual is 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 that it's mandated what the payout is. So for the for the guy that runs at the Churchill Downs at this point, they know they have to pay it out. So it doesn't matter that there's no there's no 
innate reason for them to monkey because the, the law says you have to pay this much back to the customer where they're in a slot machine. If it's not regulated, well, there's some reasons right. that yeah. somebody might want to jiggle the right. jiggle the thing. So um, anyways, they're happy to have you win because they got to give out the money. And how, how is the track doing now? Well, very well. We've uh, We've gone from being from what I would call classify us as a C-level track to we run in the summer. Um, how many, how long? We run for, we ran for 27 days this year. Okay. We're going to run for 30 days, I think, next year. But we're the, probably the second highest purse level next to Saratoga, who's, we're running at the same time on the East Coast now. So I think we're very much a B to B plus track now. I don't think, I don't know that we can ever get to be an A track. I don't know that. Because of Saratoga, New York is always going to be there above us, probably. Have you got boxes and that kind of stuff? Oh, there's the boxes. It's a it's a great day. It's fun. It's uh, McNamara spends a lot of time there. Hixie, yeah, it does. I, I think Authentic yeah. might have to take a road trip one day Absolutely. down to the track. I think so. But the the greatest thing is this money has really we've used the money in smart places to really help build back the horse industry and our farms. I mean, the racing is great, but, um, you know, the kind of crazy thing about that is, is that we are, our purses are so high. Now we attract the, the Shug McGahees, the grand motions from out of state. They're going to come in with their good horses and win most of our purse money. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really good about figuring out how to keep that in house. And so we, we've come up with incentive programs that have really, brought horses into our into our state they're saving our farms you know they're they've been hiring people they've been building capital projects uh it, it it's really been amazing to watch so you think it'll continue to grow they're going to open a we have a new uh hhr facility that was supposed to open in 23 that's in northern virginia called Dum it's in dumfries which is just south yeah, of alexandria sure. right on 95. um that's going to be big it's going to have 18, 15, 1800 machines right in Northern wow. Virginia. You see what the 2300 are doing. I got to believe that one's going to almost double just right on it. You know, Do you itself. think the track will grow as well? It does. We're the great thing. The great thing about Virginia is that our laws say for every hundred machines, you have to uh, run one day of racing, which is where other, other states have made mistakes because these gaming companies come in and they want to they want to talk racing when they get in your state, but, yeah, but, then but they, don't race. they don't want to race yeah. because racing yeah. costs money and the other stuff is printing money. So we've done it a little better. I'm not saying we don't have to do things, but um, we're we'll grow as as Dumfries when Dumfries opens uh, in 24. I see us uh, next year in, in 2024. Dumfries won't be open um, when we have to request request dates. So we'll be. 30 days next year, I see us going to 42, 40, 45 to, and, for the, in 25, as far as racing days. And knowing nothing about the horse racing, those 45 days, are there other tracks open running races on the East coast during those 45 days? There are. Okay. Okay. And that's an issue with racing in general. We we're, it's gotten very competitive for the horses because our horse, the horse population has been shrinking, not expanding. And so uh, with this extra gaming, there's money around for purses, but we are all competing for the same horses. So that's why we'll never see year-round racing in Virginia, because we'd rather keep our purse levels high enough 
mm-hmm. where we're going to attract horses and have full fields because that generates more guys betting on your on your races mm-hmm. it's all intertwined and so uh, uh we know that'll never happen in virginia so we're happy to have a very well-funded 45 50 days of racing here Debs, what's of all the the stuff you've been involved in in the thoroughbred business what, can you give us uh, an example or two of of the high high for you personally sure for you personally the, you know i mean just you were like wow this is amazing so the the greatest thing in the horse racing period is if you're a horse owner and your horse is coming down the lane uh in first place to cross mm-hmm. the finish line i can't explain it uh it's it's a different feeling being an athlete all my life i got to do some cool things but sam huff hall of fame pro bowl hall of famer was a client of mine and he said debbie i don't care how many super bowls i went to i never got the feeling i do when my horse is coming down into first place and crosses first place so it's a it's an unbelievable high and obviously it's when you get to win a, a big race it's it's even more high but it doesn't matter it can be a ten thousand dollar it can be a ten thousand dollar claimer and you still just get this unbelievable crazy just excited feeling when your horse is winning a race and you know i from you talking about it too one of the things that i think is great is the uh is the fact that you can have people who really study the bloodlines and spend a tremendous amount of money on horses but sometimes you can have the person who has a good eye that doesn't have the pocketbook, who's able to pick some horses that can win. Sure. And that's the beauty of it to me is that you have got these people that um, don't have the funds, but they're still competitive. Sure. And that's even better. Sure. It, it's you asked Tom, what is also besides the winning, a good horse takes you places that you, you know, you would never get to go. And, and, and the excitement of, uh, when you, uh, or have a great horse and, and, and most people that pick horses, it's just, it's, it's very similar to baseball. If you're a 15, 20%, uh, if you're a 20% hitter and picking horses, uh, uh, you know, as far as picking them and then going on to run, you're doing very well. And, uh, and so, you know, I know a baseball player needs to be a 30% yeah, yeah, guy, but it's uh, a 20%, 25 would be f- unbelievably phenomenal. All right. Let me ask one last question. Sure. When your history, is there anybody that has stood out to you that has had an innate sense better than most in regard to having a sense of horse to pick out horses? You're trying to lay down a bed, aren't you? I want to meet this person. I know you do. I know it. you do. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to reach out to this, yeah, this person. The, and by the way, can you include their phone number? Yeah, yeah, email? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, one or two of them, you're going to know the names. I think there's there's definitely people that are, are better than others. Yeah. But I'll give you a name. Bob Baffert over the years has been a very good horse picker. The people he and the what people he's it? used. What is it? He's, it's he they they have a good eye for what an athletic course is going to do and and something that look in this america what's important is speed and he's got a very good eye for something that's got some speed and can carry it a little bit and uh um uh, there's others that have done well too but i uh but to your point luck plays oh a big it's part. yeah if i you know 
I think that people would be very misguided to think that they get very high on themselves thinking they were the biggest, the best horse picker in the world because luck plays such a, mm-hmm. a large part wow. of it. Yeah. yeah. And it is, uh, and having funds, obviously having the funds like he does to be able to buy what sure. you want all the time is a big advantage, but it still doesn't get him, you know, he doesn't win any more than, you know, yeah. he's very, he's very good, but he's, uh, you know, doesn't mean he, he takes over the game. Yeah. So. Amazing. Deb's great stuff. We learned a lot about the thoroughbred business that I certainly, I didn't know. I mean, uh, it's awesome. I, I, uh, unique to me. Uh, I think it's probably unique to most people who, who listen to our podcast or most of our friends. They, it's just, it's awesome. And I'm, thank you so much, by the way, what you do for the horse business, what you do for the Commonwealth. Uh, it's so interesting. No, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been fun. And, and like I say, I have a passion for it. So, uh, but I appreciate y'all. I know we've jumped, we've dropped, we've just jumped all over every place. I don't know that we got well, enough, we, but we, we've we, jumped we, all over. That's what we do. Yeah. We, uh, uh, un, unscripted, unedited, and we're just having a conversation and you've got some, some, uh, crazy good experiences and, and a great passion. And we love to talk to people with great passions. Absolutely. Thank you. I so mean, thank you. ice hockey to, to basketball and skirts, to <laughs> lacrosse, to the horse business. Exactly. Thank you, Debbie. Thank yeah, you all very much, very much for having me. Authentic Conversations with Stock and Hicksie is broadcast for the world from Charlottesville, Virginia by Tom Hicks and Rob Stockhausen. Please like, follow, and share if you have enjoyed this conversation. Have an authentic day.